everyone. My name is April Andes, and I'm a blogger and writer for Labster, creator of virtual lab simulations for science students. As always, I'm proud to say that Labster is guided by our mission to empower the next generation of scientists to change the world and contribute to solving problems like climate change and curing disease like cancer. If you're listening to this podcast, we know that you likely also share that mission. So thank you. And let's get started. Today's episode is about the topic of inclusion in virtual science education. With me is my friend and fellow Labsterite, S.J. Bolton. S.J. is an educational designer and former university lecturer whose current work involves developing new virtual lab simulations for students in high school, college, and university science courses. Hello! Hello, S.J. It's great to be talking with you again. Hi. Good to, good to hear from you, too. So I wanted to ask, in your role at Labster, I know you get to do the really meaty, fun part and actually help create virtual science labs. I'd really love to hear more about that whole process. What is it like? And can you give us a background on what we actually mean by virtual labs? Yeah, for sure. So when we're thinking about a virtual lab experience, we're thinking about having a simulated environment most of the time, it does look like a lab room, um, a very futuristic and hexagonal lab room. But sometimes it's in a forest or sometimes it's on the desert plains of imaginary planet Astacos 4. And what we're aiming to do is create an opportunity for students to, for example, try out lab techniques for the first time, or maybe even become a little bit more familiar with pieces of equipment that are expensive or that might be inaccessible. I know, for example, when I was a student, we had one gas chromatography machine in the entire uni and trying to get 60 pharmacology students around that machine was really tricky. So maybe a GC simulation could have been super helpful when I was a student. <laughs> but um, yeah, there are opportunities for creating alternative access to science education. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure to mention in this episode is that as we're recording, this is chemistry week in the UK. And I know this year, the Royal Society of Chemistry is focusing its week on the topic of inclusion. And a part of your role at Labster has to do with finding inclusive tools to support learning. And I wanted to ask you to say more about that. How are you helping to make our virtual labs more inclusive? And what do we mean by inclusive design? What is it? That is a big question, April. (laughs) (laughs) So when we are talking about inclusive design in the context of our virtual simulations, what we mean is creating access to the learning that's embedded within the simulations for every user, be they educator or student. And what we aim to do is break down the barriers that stop a user from, or stops a student or an educator from really engaging with the learning opportunities that are contained within. One of the things that can be helpful to think about during an inclusive design process is something called the three dimensions, which has been published in various places. But they all come down to the same kind of three things. Um, the first thing is recognising and respecting the uniqueness of every every user, every student. 
The second is ensuring that the processes that are used during the design phase are transparent and that they involve a really diverse range of perspectives from different people and different places. And the final thing is around recognizing that as as designers and creators, we are operating within a really complex and an adaptive um, context and that things are always changing. So there's a need for response and constant listening and monitoring of an environment or a context of our learning. So I think we address those three dimensions in lots of different ways. And there's a lot of opportunity with the way that we work with educators and students and listen to their feedback um, for us to really create something that's truly both accessible and inclusive for as many people as possible. And I've seen and heard a bit about how you who are developing the simulations are in constant contact with learners, with educators for their feedback, both in the beta phase of your design, but also even after a simulation has been developed and released. Can you say more about that? Yeah, for sure. So we have a number of different ways that we listen to the different users of our simulations. For example, through Intercom, which is our rapid access, get some help with the simulation system. And there are a bunch of very tireless and excellent people that are there on the other end of our Intercom system, listening and helping. But what you might not know is that everything that they pick up on in terms of issues for access or cultural bias or suggestions for how we might improve the diversity of representation within our simulations comes to the content team. And we listen and we try and formulate responses that are useful that we can actually implement within our current platform. So we're always listening and always trying to create new ideas for how we can improve in the future if we can't do something about the issue in that moment. Another way that we we listen is through our content creation managers. Our content creators are often talking with educators and sometimes talking with students to listen to what their needs are in terms of educational experiences, but also access arrangements. So we might want to understand better the needs of a student who has a visual impact. So do they need things like screen reader or do they need to use keyboard navigation instead of using a mouse? Um, Do we need to ensure that there are alternatives to reading on a screen or alternatives to only hearing instructions? Um, I'll talk a little bit more about some of our work towards creating accessible simulations for visually impacted users a little bit later. But just to flag up that that's something that we're, we're working on right now. Some of those comments also come in around diversity. So for example, in our very first platform or our very first simulations, the avatar that represents the user in the simulation, um, you might recognize if you've ever played one of our simulations, is a hand. And one hand holds a thing called the lab pad, which is like a tablet style computer that all of your instructions and images are contained within. And the other hand is one that floats around and does all of the work. Originally, that hand was just a Caucasian white skin tone. And we got some feedback that it would be really nice to be able to change that skin tone or indeed to have opportunity for other skin tones to be represented within the simulations. So in response to that feedback, when we were able to or when our platform had matured a little bit more so that we could support the feature that was needed, 
we have a feature now where the skin tone of the avatar representing the user is randomly generated. And there are five different skin tones to represent the different users of our simulations that can randomly be generated in the simulation. So our newest simulations, this is something that happens. I mean, more often than not, the hand is blue because it's got a glove on because we have to engage in our safe practices. But certainly when the simulation first starts, you'll see that hand uncovered, certainly for the first few tasks or the first few interactions. So that skin tone is randomly generated. That is something I think a lot of people would not be aware of if they only run through one simulation one time. Yeah, for sure. And part of that that we're working on at the minute is by diversifying our character catalog. And what I mean by character catalog is kind of the range of digital avatars that we have to portray different characters within our simulation. So the lab technician, um, the patient that's in for a blood test, so on and so forth. So these digital avatars can have uh, different features, physical features that identify them as having a particular ethnicity or size or hair color. And we're trying to ensure that those avatars that we generate don't unnecessarily reinforce particular stereotypes or don't um, aren't only used in stereotypically recognized places. Well, thank you for that. I'm conscious that I know some of the teachers, high school science teachers, maybe university instructors who are listening to us right now might be thinking, okay, but how can I create a more inclusive virtual lab course? And before the show, I had tried looking up some best practices and I found some academic journal articles and other just web resources that were really centered around face-to-face in-person labs. But I didn't find as many on virtual labs and online courses. So is there anything helpful that you could share with teachers whose lab courses are are now 100% remote and online due to the pandemic? You know, one of the most exciting things that came to mind while you were speaking there is that all of the educators that are listening, all of the people that are thinking about including virtual lab classes, they are the pioneers and they are the ones that are going to be generating those resources for the people that come next. So my hat is off to these early adopters. Congratulations, you're the best. In terms of creating those inclusive experiences, though, I guess there's there's a few key ingredients for how um, virtual labs can be best embedded within a traditional curriculum or set of teaching experiences. I guess the first one is always checking for access needs. Um, do your students need a screen reader? Do they need keyboard navigation? Is there something that is going to, in their personal education plan, is there something that means they can't necessarily interact with the, the virtual lab as it exists in its regular mode? We are in the process of um, creating an accessible version of what we call accessibility mode of all of our simulations in the catalogue. We're unsure when we're going to have them all done, <laughs> but we are certainly making a big old dent in getting our entire catalogue <laughs> up to scratch. And what this means is that, say, for example, a student with a visual impact would be able to use keyboard navigation to access all of the content and have a commensurate experience of a non-visually impacted user when they were playing our virtual simulations. So if you have any questions about that, if you're an educator that might need a keyboard navigation virtual sim, just drop us a line, get in touch with us. We're more than happy to talk to you about that. And you can always visit our website to find out which simulations are actually in accessible version right now. 
So do check ahead for access needs and reach out to us and talk to us if you want to learn more or um, find out more about what we're doing. So access needs in the bag, definitely check those. My second bit of good advice, hopefully, um, would be to really surround the lab with support of activities to truly embed it within a set of or within a, a learning regime. It might be pre-reading, it might be a fact-finding task, it might be a quick research task, finding information online or finding information in a textbook. A small activity that kind of primes the, the student for the type of activity they're going to interact with in the virtual lab or even just the topic that the virtual lab's on so that they're not entering it completely cold. After we've done this very simple or kind of warm-up activity, we head straight into the virtual lab hopefully, and they have a grand old time. We really hope that everybody enjoys them. Let's just put it out there. I want everybody to enjoy every lab. I think that's a fair goal of mine as a content creator. And I think the goal of Labster is to make learning fun because that's when learning happens, when you're, you know, relaxed and open and hopefully engaged. Sure. And I really hope that, you know... Dr. Wan doesn't irritate people and that her jokes don't always fall flat because she does try, bless her. Um, <laughs> Dr. Wan is uh, the main person you will receive teaching from in the lab. She's a, she's a drone, she can fly, and she tells terrible jokes. So forgive her and be, be warned if you do meet her in a virtual lab. But yeah, within the simulation, we try and follow kind of like a little, I think I've called it before, like a little micro learning cycle where we recall knowledge introduce knowledge and introduce a new activity, extend knowledge, and then check in whether knowledge transfer has actually taken place. Not always, you know, there are often more steps than that, but it's just this tiny little cycle of learning that's repeated in the simulation as the the student moves through different learning activities within the larger simulation. And that's echoed by the larger learning cycle where we recall prior learning at the beginning of a simulation, work through different activities, checking in with quiz questions as we go, and often have a consolidation conversation or quiz questions at the end. So we're always embedding this little cycle of recall activity and consolidation within the simulation. I was going to pop in and just say that that, just knowing how much goes into each simulation that is not immediately visible to the layperson on the surface. I know I've played simulations and I really was not aware that those kind of like micro cycles, as you said, are happening all the time and that that's what's kind of moving me through this learning process. I think in a future episode, it would be so much fun to dive a little deeper into that. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to talk more about that. And sneak preview of something that we're working on right now in the background is this idea of trying to really recognize what in our simulations works for a great learning activity and trying to create almost like templates of activity to ensure that those same actions and interactions and activities can be addressed in multiple simulations. So when we're making new content, we always know this is the pattern of interaction that works really well to teach this topic. So we can be consistent over a whole course or a whole program of education within our content. So I'm really excited to see how that stuff turns out myself. We're in the process now. So, you know, come check back in next quarter and see how we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So if we've got our simple activities, our simple pre-lab activities, if you want, um, 
fact finding, reading perhaps, um, maybe reading a blog or finding information online. Then we have our virtual lab experience. And then maybe we have a more constructive activity, something that's more consolidating after the lab. Something like that might be designing a protocol based on a technique that's taught in the lab, or maybe even troubleshooting a protocol that isn't written very well. It's always a great way to help students um, recognize what good practices, what safe practices. I love a good troubleshooting activity. So if we can relate what's in the virtual lab to an actual practice in the physical lab or a practice that would happen in a physical lab through a protocol, that might be one way of negotiating, not being able to get into the lab right now, but still kind of engaging with the process of science or the process of experimentation. Another constructive activity might be interpreting a data set that's related to what the virtual lab has offered or the technique that's demonstrated in the virtual lab, or maybe even choosing a best method not necessarily writing the whole protocol, but choosing from a, a few different methodologies, like um, which one would you use to investigate the topic that we've accessed in the lab, which is best? Why is that best? So we're really engaging um, students with that critical analysis of what it is they've actually done in the virtual lab and in the physical world, how that translates. It would always be good to try and use group activities to maybe get the students collaborating a bit more, seeing how at the minute lots of students aren't seeing their peers in the classroom like they might traditionally do. So I'm all for a good group activity where possible, maybe after the lab, especially when during the virtual lab, it's done on a one user, one simulation basis. You're not interacting with your peers while you're in the virtual lab. But yeah, I think there's still a place for good old group work outside of the virtual lab to really consolidate that. Absolutely love hearing that suggestion for group activities for consolidating the learning. I know that the topic of student loneliness and isolation is something that came up at the recent Labster Science Online 2020 conference. And several of our educators who spoke recommended having Zoom meetings, breakout sessions in Zoom or Google Meet where students can work simultaneously on their own work, but then come together after the simulation and put together some sort of a project. And that students really rated those activities highly. They loved the opportunity. For sure. And there's always the opportunity to kind of flip the classroom a little bit, depending on what that means to you, where maybe the activity before the virtual lab is to really tease apart and learn the topic through research, through group collaboration on producing a poster, for example, or producing a short blog, or even depending on the resources available, a web page, whatever the, the technical level of that class is. And then the virtual lab is used as the consolidation activity. It can work that way too. So you've got your group activity at the beginning and your virtual lab afterwards as the consolidation activity. If that fits the pedagogy of your course or the curriculum of your course, it might not, but it's another suggestion of how you can leverage virtual labs within the classroom. We could talk all day about cool ways to teach. And I just love that we have this virtual tool that could maybe offer some alternatives during a time where I'm really feeling for educators right now, I'll be honest. And anything that creates the opportunity for discussion with the students. So even though they're completing these virtual labs on their own, it creates an opportunity for critique and discussion. Even if it's informal, even if the students are just like, oh, did you play that lab? Did you like it? There's still that kind of shared experience for discussion. And that in itself can be a really inclusive activity, just sharing an experience and sharing your vantage on that experience is 
to my mind, a, a hidden curriculum, but a very positive part of the hidden curriculum of any course. So yeah, I guess the final thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking about virtual labs embedded within a curriculum is ensuring that they are given time and importance. One way that labs have been used in the past is just to say, oh, we have this resource. If you want to use it for your revision or whatever, just go ahead and do it. Virtual labs are great revision tools and and I get that. However, if you want to use the virtual labs to really deliver a portion of your syllabus or to really highlight a particular topic or a technique within your syllabus for a course, then it would be better to either dedicate a time slot in the timetable for completion of the virtual lab or given a very clear deadline of when the lab needs to be done and then embedding or creating value for that experience by following up with a a secondary activity like a discussion or like a report or like a data analysis, something like that. That way, the importance of the virtual lab is really highlighted and it gives value to to the content that's within that virtual lab rather than it just being a passive activity that's done in isolation. Great advice. And, you know, thinking of dedicating a time slot is making me recall that, you know, our time is kind of drawing to a close for this episode. Anna, wow. Yeah, I know we could go on forever. It's been so (laughs) much fun to talk with you. I want to thank you for our conversation. No, I really enjoyed talking about what it's like to be a creator for this kind of things. And I really hope that the educators that are listening or even the students that are listening really see the amount of, of prep work and thought that goes into creating the experience, not just the learning, but the actual experience of the virtual lab itself. It's it's so much fun. I love my job. I'm not going to lie. I love my job. But um, I, I do feel like we do put a lot of tight consideration into how we can create the best experience possible for all users. And I do believe that comes across. And uh, I'm so excited to continue our conversations. For today, though, I would say that's probably all for us. So until next time, everyone, keep learning, keep teaching, and stay safe. Thank you. Bye-bye.